Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It is mucking fun day and a lot of stuff has happened over the weekend. I don't know if we're going to cover it. I'm going to cover a lot of things about Japan for some reason because that was what was on my news feed and I wasn't really interested in those two stories. So let's go ahead and get into our headlines. Today on Before Coffee. Japan hosts Ukraine Reconstruction Conference to showcase its support for the war-torn country. And what's mucking fun day with an, without another California atmospheric river? Could Georgia's white founder have been an ally to enslaved people? A new book dissects his history. And another day, another day of mass shootings in USA shooting gallery. Japan's naked men festival succumbs to an aging population. Sad to see. Those stories and more, which is President's Day and, I, and actually National Chocolate Mint Day. February 19th, 2024 on B4 Coffee. All right, let's go to our first news story here about Japan and Ukraine. That's right, the two, the team up you didn't expect, or maybe you should expect because let's be honest, Japan it does not have the best relationship with Russia, especially historically. Ukraine's prime, um, this is from AP, but I'm reading it from the Hindu.com. And I don't know if it's written by anyone. It never gives me who wrote it. No, it's not written by anybody. It's written by AP. Whoever AP is, good job for them. <laughs> Ukraine's <laughs> Prime Minister, Denis Shimal, and Jap Japan Jap and the Japanese Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, attend a memoriam of cooperation and exchange ceremony during the Japan-Ukraine Conference for promotion of economic growth and reconstruction at the Kenarin Gaiken building in Tokyo. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on February 19th pledged his country's long-term engagement in Ukraine's reconstruction, calling it a future investment as Japan stressed its commitment to support the war-torn country ahead of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. In his keynote speech at a conference Japan co-organized with the Ukrainian government and business organization, Mr. Kishida said Jap Japanese public and private cooperation will be a long-term partnership based on inclusivity, humanity, Humanitarianism, as well as technology and knowledge. More than 50 cooperation deals were signed by the Japanese and Ukrainian government agencies and companies. Mr. Kishida stressed the importance of investment across industries for the future of the country's development and ensuring that the support caters to Ukrainians, Ukraine's needs. Support for Ukraine's reconstruction is about investing in the future. Mr. Kishida said, the war in Ukraine is still going on and at this very moment, and the situation is not easy. The promotion of economic reconstruction, however, is not only an investment for the future of Ukraine, but also investing in Japan and the whole globe. Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shimal, who headed his country's delegation and more than 100 people, expressed thanks for encouragement and said, today is a new start of cooperation between the two countries. He said Ukraine is not just rebuilding, we are generating new rules of the game, new approaches. He said, all eyes on Ukraine and dictators and potential invaders are also turning their eyes to see how Russia's violation of international law is seen and how the world will react to it. About 300 people and 80 companies are to attend the two countries' 
The two countries, the official gathering, Japanese officials have said, the Japan-Ukraine Conference for Promotion of Economic Growth and Reconstruction is co-organized by the Japanese and Ukrainian governments. Japan's powerful business organizations, Kai I I Danren and Japan External Trade Organization, or JETRO. The two sides issued a joint communique stating Japan's long-term support in helping Ukraine achieve economic stability. The two countries also noted the importance of maintaining tough sanctions against Russia. Japan also announced the start of talks toward revising a bilateral investment pact and easing of travel restrictions for Japanese business visitors to Ukraine. Japan hopes the conference will build momentum for international support for Ukraine as the war on drugs, or sorry, as the war drags on and the attention has diverted to the Gaza situation. Indeed, a situation it is. Aside. The conference is largely about reconstruction and investment in Ukraine, but it's also about Japan's national security. That's right. If Russia can just invade Ukraine, they can just invade China, and they can just invade Japan, and they can just invade Korea. Hey, why stop there? Just invade the whole world. Because um, nobody is going to do anything except go, hey, Russia, stop, stop that. Hey, what are you doing for two years? That's what's happened. Just saying. That's been the reaction for two years. Hey, stop. You can't do that. That hurts my feelings. Mr. Kishida repeatedly said Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow. And it's crucial for Japan to advocate objection to Russia's invasion and the one-sided change of the status quo by force. It supports for Ukraine comes amid fear of China's increasingly assertive military actions in the region. It's extremely important that we demonstrate our solidarity to Ukraine in a uniquely Japanese way. Foreign Minister Yoko Kamigawa told reporters on Friday, which was the 16th of February. Japan's $12.1 billion contribution to Ukraine over the past two years is mostly financial and humanitarian as its military equipment provisions are limited to non-lethal weapons because they were under U.S. Um, sanctions themselves after World War II and have had a very rough time at ever making a military. Um, it's quite small compared to the 111 billion the United States has provided in weapons and equipment and humanitarian assistance. Japan's government has chosen seven target areas, including removal of mines and debris, improvement of humanitarian and living conditions, farming, biochemical manufacturing, digital and information industry, and infrastructure and power and transportation sectors, as well as anti-corruption measures. So those are all the things that they've, seven target areas they want to help Ukraine with, when and if this war ever ends and Russia finally runs out of all their tanks or something and they go back home, because that's what we're doing now. We're just waiting for Russia to be like, oh, we ran out of stuff. Whoops, and I guess we'll go back. <laughs> I guess that's what we're waiting for. Yeah. But those are seven things the Japanese government is going to help Ukraine, even though it's only with 12.1 billion, but that's still a lot of money. Whether or not it's enough money, I don't know. I'm not running a government, but... Japan, in cooperation with other group of seven members, hopes to link the Tokyo Conference to a separate Ukraine Reconstruction Conference to be held in Germany in June. So we'll probably talk about that in June in Germany, about what else they're going to say to show that they support Ukraine by actually not doing anything to stop Russia from invading. But I'm just being cynical. On to your next story. We're waiting for Putin to die. That's what we're waiting oh, yeah. for. They He's think old. they can stop the Putin yeah, dies, sure. 
What? You think they're, it's gonna stop because Putin dies? That's nice. I, well, it might. There's a, there'll be a power struggle. They don't have a they don't have a secession uh, system like we have, where they just go vice president. They go, mm -hmm. oh, that guy's vice president. He look, let's take him down. I mean, look what happened with Yeltsin. He was supposed to be a president, and they re replaced him with another president, and they just keep having elections. Why well, didn't happen? Okay, well, on to the weather in the United States, if it is indeed my turn. Mm-hmm. With my freaky retro glasses, here we go. I am back in the 80s, and I'm in a <laughs> punk band. The U.S. West Coast, I'm sorry, New Way punk bands would just have spiced their nose. The U.S. West Coast faces a fresh round of heavy rainfall and snow this week as yet another atmospheric river began slamming California on Sunday. This is Axios. Slamming. Click the first. Uh, Axios Rebecca Falconer. Another cool name. I wish I had a cool name like Falconer. <laughs> Blood watches stretch across much of California's coast as rainfall began to hit Northern California. Our northern coastal area Sunday afternoon and began spreading south by evening. A couple of inches of rain can expect to fully cross the lower elevations of Northern California, while coastal central Southern California is expected to receive heavy rain, totaling a few inches through next day, couple of days. I know it seems like a broken record, but it is happening again. These rains are expected to rise, raise at a risk of flashing, flash flooding to moderate levels of affected areas. Of note, soils in Southern and Central California remain well saturated from Saturday's lighter rains and previous days precipitation per the National Weather Service Prediction Center. Parts of California are still recovering from atmospheric river earlier this month that brought mudslides and historic rainfall to Los Angeles. The National Weather Service LA office said the region could expect moderate heavy Rainfall through Wednesday with high elevation, snow, strong winds, and flooding, possible power outages. California Governor Gavin Newsom's office announced Sunday he had activated the state's operations center to help coordinate state and local federal response to the potentially significant rainfall and snow throughout much of the state, as well as potential for thunderstorms, debris, and debris flows and mudslides. There's a moderate risk of excessive fall and flash flooding in Santa Lucia and Santa Ynez mountain ranges in Central and Southern California. The WPC placed portions of California Central Valley at level two out of five on a severe thunderstorm risk scale. This includes Sacramento. So yeah, California. It's meanwhile, here in Nevada and the Mount Shasta will be impacted by an onslaught of heavy snow on Monday with snow likely totaling a few feet through the next couple of days per NWS, National Weather Service. Between the lines, atmospheric river, highways, concentrated water vapor in the middle of the atmosphere that can stretch for thousands of miles, challenging, channeling water from the subtropics to temperate regions. Climate change, more moisture to the atmospheric rivers leading to higher rain and snow totals. Studies show by Tuesday, both the intensity and the coverage of the are expected to be decreased as the system pushes farther inland and weaker. There's your weather nose from California, and we're going to cover a little 
story we have on Reuters business about the steep cost of recovery from Ukraine or more Ukraine news it's still happening. Well, it's not all about Ukraine. It says <laughs> take five. Reuters is uh, updated uh, six hours ago. No person's name on it or they hit it. It's been two years since Russia invaded Ukraine, bringing war to Europe for the first time in decades. While the makers, the market's AI bulls seemingly unsolvable run continues in China, returns from a week-long holiday to economic certainty. This is economic, as if you haven't guessed it. Here's a week ahead in the primer for world markets from Ray Wei, Lee in Singapore, Louis Kraskoff in New York, and Mark Jones, Dinah, Rana Shinge, and Naomi Robnick in London. February 24th marks two years since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. While the markets have long overcome the initial panic, the anniversary is an unwelcome reminder of the war's ongoing and multifaceted toll. Aside from the human tragedy, the cost alone is now estimated to have reached almost a half a trillion dollars or 2.8 times Ukraine's annual economic output. Western governments have provided $100 billion to $60 billion I'm sorry, 100 billion, which is 60 billion in military aid and 40 billion in budgetary help, a year since the invasion. The grumblings are growing in Washington. Not really, it's just Republican. Uh, European leaders could also be about to raid some of the frozen Russian asset money that's currently sitting aside, sitting idle. Steep costs of recovery come from the war in Ukraine. The recovery and reconstruction needs for Ukraine due to the war in Russia are estimated at $486 billion with the most costs required for the social and infrastructure sectors. A resilient U.S. economy with its strong labor market explains why global recessions have fears have fallen away. Yes, even with China in the doldrums and Paros, Germany, now the sick man of Europe, business activity data out Thursday should show that the picture behind the U.S. is not all bleak. While in contraction territory, the January Euro zone PMI hit six-month highs and block avoided a recession, and the block avoided a recession late last year. The latest GDP data suggests German quarter four GDP data and the IFO sentiment index are out Friday. Note, German business morale brightened last month. So Germany is possibly in a recession. Emerging markets outside China, notably India and the Middle East are strong in the U and the US are strong and the US PMI likely remains in expansion territory after reaching six months highs in January. No surprise then that investors are no longer expect a recession. Markets in China return from the week-long Lunar New Year holiday on Monday, and investors are looking out for what Beijing does next to shore up its battered stock market. In the run-up to the festive period, authorities scramble to pull out all the stops to stem losses in main shares that had cratered to five-year lows. That included appointing a new head of the country's market regulator nicknamed the Broker Butcher for his tough stance on contract containing risks. The week also brings a decision from the People's Bank of China on its benchmark lending rates. 
though persistent headwinds for the the yuan could limit the scope for any monetary easing. Home prices, meanwhile, landed on Friday, which showed how deep downturn in the beleaguered property sector is. While stunning gains of the so-called Magnificent Seven have been the story of the U.S. stock market over the past year, one of those mega-cap tech and growth stocks has been the main character. NVIDIA reports quarterly results on February 21st. After its stock more than tripled in 2023, the chipmaker at the center of the excitement over AI has seen its shares soar roughly another 50% so far this year. NVIDIA has now surpassed Amazon and Alphabet in market value, making it the third biggest U.S. company by market cap as of February 5th, 14th. Such mammoth stock gains stand to raise the bar for its results, which the company reports that the U.S. market closes on Wednesday. And any disappointment potentially has a broad market follow given NVIDIA's growth heft in major indices and importance to the outlook for AI's financial does it say AI's? Let's see what that word is. AI's financial promise. Sorry, the word is technology, man. Technology. The UK's financial results for 2023. They have had the best year on record. Investors are likely to cheer. HSBC, Barclays, and NetWest Standard Chartered. Lloyd's could account combined pre-tax profits of 51.6 million pounds or 64.8 billion dollars above the 2007 record as a 35.8 billion stock broker A.J. Bell calculates. All right, rich banks in England are making lots of money. Let's all celebrate. Markets tend to focus on the future, however, and for UK banks is much uncertain. I think it's a bank that passed on the borrowers, while struggling, shrugging off pressure to equally compensate savers, have fattened up their profit margins for now. If bankers know one thing, it's how to take profits. Yep. But a new mortgage floor and the need to repay Bank of England pandemic area support are threatening future earnings. Borrower stress is also increasing with insolvencies running at their highest since 1993. Insolvency. U.S. bank shares trading at hefty discounts to lenders' asset values suggest the record year the industry is about to report has already faded from investors' minds. There's your story, U.S. and the world economy, several fronts at one time. That's why it's called Mucking Fun Day. We just muck things up and report on them. <laughs> Back to you. It's, yeah, I mean, it's Monday. It's Mondays or Mondays. Okay. Hopefully everyone in California is taking care of that river, that atmospheric river that they're basically swimming through. And let's go ahead and go to our next story, which is quite long, but it's about some, a little bit more of Black History Month. It's still going on. And this is about the history behind Georgia's white founder. Did they actually want were they an abolitionist this is by russ binum on ap news coming out of savannah georgia michael thurmond thought he was reading family history at the bureau place of georgia's colonial founder 
then a single sentence on a marble plaque extolling the accomplishments of James Edward Oglethorpe left him stunned and speechless. With a lengthy tribute to the Englishman who died in 1785, the inscription read, he was the friend of the oppressed Negro. Oglethorpe led the expedition that established Georgia as the last of Britain's 13 American colonies in February 1733. Thurmond, a history aficionado and the only black member of Georgia's delegation visiting the founder's tomb outside London, knew Oglethorpe had tried uns unsuccessfully to keep slaves out of the colony. Historians widely agreed he was concerned for the safety and self-sufficiency of white settlers rather than the suffering of enslaved Africans. Could Georgia's white founder father possibly been have an al been an ally to black people in an era when the British Empire was forcing thousands into bondage? It was stunning, Thurmond recalled. Initially, I was consumed by disbelief. I didn't believe it was true. Thurmond would grapple with questions raised by that visit for the next 27 years, compelled to take a closer look at Oglethorpe. Now he has written a provocatively titled book, James Oglethorpe, Father of Georgia. A founder's journey from slave trader to abolitionist. Now that is definitely a headline that somebody will be like, huh? Published this month by the University of Georgia's Press, Thurman's book makes a case that Ockelthorpe evolved to revile, revile slavery and unlike most white European of his time, saw the humanity in enslaved Africans. While Ockelthorpe's efforts to prohibit slavery in Georgia ultimately failed, Thurmond argues he left a lasting and largely uncredited legacy by influencing early English abo abolitionists. He is, a shining and he is shining a spotlight on the part of Oglethorpe's life that most people have kind of thought was just periphery, said Stan Deaton, senior historian for the Georgia Historical Society. I think he thought deeply about this, and let's be honest, there have not been many African Americans who have written about colonial Georgia, particularly about Oglethorpe. Though this is Thurman's third book about Georgia's history, he's no academic. The son of a sharecropper and a great-grandson of a Georgian slave, Thurman became an attorney and has served for decades in state and local government. His 1998 election as state labor commissioner made Thurman the first black candidate to win statewide office in Georgia without first being appointed. That is really fucking sad. I'm sorry, 1998? Not 1988, not 1968. 1998, four years after I was born, Georgia got its first non-appointed black guy in a position of power. Ah. <laughs> ah. It's Georgia. Why am I not supposed to say they're yeah. first? 90% black Georgia, but they finally got their first uh, candidate to win office black. in 1998. That's a little bit. No, I know. I'm being hyperbolic. It's not 90%. He's now elected oh, CEO man. of DeKalb County, which includes portions of Atlanta. His book traces Oglethorpe's origins as a wealthy Englishman who held a seat in Parliament and served as deputy governor of the slave trading Royal African Company before departing for America. Thurman argues that seeing the cruelty of slavery firsthand changed Oglethorpe, who returned to England and shared his views with activists who would become Britain's first abolitionists. What I tried to do is to follow the arc of his life. His evolution and development, to weigh all of his achievements, failures, and shortcomings, Thurman said. Once you do that, you find that he had a uniquely important life. He helped breathe life into the movement that ultimately destroyed slavery. In its early years, Georgia stood alone as Britain's only American colony in which slavery was illegal. The ban came as the population of slave Africans in colonial America was nearing 150,000. 
enslaved people. Black captives were being sold in New York and Boston, and they already outnumbered white settlers in South Carolina. Historians have widely agreed Oglethorpe and his fellow Georgian trustees didn't ban slavery because it was cruel to black people. They saw slaves as a security risk, with Georgia on the doorstep of Spanish Florida, which sought to free and enlist escaped slaves to help fight the British. They also feared slave labor would instill laziness amongst Georgia settlers, who expected to tend their own modest farms. It didn't last. The slave ban was widely ignored when Oglethorpe left Georgia for good in 1743, and its enforcement dwindled in his absence. By the time American colonists declared independence in 1776, slavery had been legal in Georgia for 25 years. When the Civil War began nearly a century later, Georgia's enslaved population topped 462,000 more than any U.S. state except Virginia. And that's why I said Georgia is 90% black. <laughs> Half, almost half a million people were enslaved. God. I guess you could say Oglethorpe was naive, said Gerald Horn, a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston and author of the book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776. Almost inevitably, the kudzu in the summer, slavery started spreading in Georgia. Like other historians, Horn is highly skeptical of Oglethorpe being a forefather of the abolitionist movement. He says that Georgia, the Georgia colony ultimately protected slavery and its sister colonies by serving a white equivalent of the Berlin Wall between South Carolina and Spanish Florida. Oglethorpe used slave labor to help build homes, streets, and public squares in Savannah, the colony's first city. Escaped slaves captured in Oglethorpe's Georgia were returned to slaveholders. Some colonists, angered by the slave ban, made unproven accusations that Oglethorpe had a South Carolina plantation worked by slaves. Thurman's book openly embraces such evidence that Oglethorpe's history with slavery was at times contradictory and unflattering. That makes his case for Oglethorpe's evolution even stronger, said James F. Brooks, a University of Georgia history professor who wrote the book's foreword. He has engaged with the historiography in a way that is clearly the equivalent of a professional historian. Brooks said, this is good stuff. He's read everything and thought about it and I don't see any weakness in it. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive actually. There's a lot of people will leave some stuff out so they get the right story they want to sell. But he's like, nope, I've seen that. Yeah, I, I agree. It was weird that he was doing that stuff. Um, but is it weird? It's just an evolution of his personality. He, he started out being a shitty guy and then he was like, wait, I'm a shitty guy. I should stop doing this and you know, turned the page yeah. into a new chapter in his life. At least that's the Thurman's arguments. argument. Thurman's evidence includes a letter of Oglethorpe wrote in 1739 that argues opening Georgia to slavery would occasion the misery of thousands in Africa. Doesn't sound like somebody was trying to save the white people from being lazy, like the other historians reported. That's the worry of assumptions. They assumed all, like the white people were all evil and none of them had a conscience. Oh, this guy hated black people. Where, where's your evidence? Uh, he was a white guy in 1776. Okay. <laughs> Everyone hated black people back then, I guess. Thurman describes how Oglethorpe assisted the two formerly enslaved black men, Ayuba Suleiman Diallo and Aluda Equiano, whose travels to England helped stir an anti-slavery sentiment among white Europeans. Oglethorpe befriended white activists who became key figures in England's ab abolitionist movement, and in a 1776 letter to Grainville Sharp, an attorney, attorney who fought to help former slaves retain the freedom, Oglethorpe proclaimed, Africa has procured a race of heroes in its kings and military leaders. He also spent time with author Hannah Moore, whose writings called for the abolition of slavery. 
1787, two years after Oglethorpe's death, Sharp and Moore were among the founders of the Society of Abolition of Slave Trade. Thurman argues Oglethorpe deserves credit as an inspiration to the budding movement. He founded Slave Free Georgia in 1733, and 100 years later, England abolished slavery, followed by the U.S. in 1865, Thurman said. He was a man far beyond his time. So there you go. You decide what you think about that, but a lot of people agree. Oh, and I say a lot of people. He believes that the founder of Georgia may have started from a bad place, but moved on to a better place and believing that, hey, where the hell are we enslaving people? What the hell? So there's your story uh, from AP onto yours. Is your camera on? My camera's on. Okay, I just don't see you. Discord. How about now? But sometimes it, I, I think it affects my signal if we're not both oh, okay. up on video. All right. My story? Yep. All right. Back to the U.S. and uh, more shootings. Because, hey, right. everybody got to shoot people. Two officers, one first responder killed at the scene of a domestic call in Minnesota. Suspect dead. Two police officers. This is from Steve Karnowski and Heather Hollingsworth of Associated Press. Two police officers and first responders were shot and killed early Sunday, and a third officer was injured at a suburban Minneapolis home in exchange of gunfire while responding to a call involving an armed man who had barricaded him himself inside man armed with multiple sh guns and large amounts of ammunition shot at police officers inside the suburban minneapolis home that was filled with children on sunday killing two officers and a firefighter who were providing medical aid to one of the wounded authorities said a third officer was wounded in the shooting in a tree light neighborhood of two-story homes in burnsville minnesota the suspect in the shooting also died officials said Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Superintendent Drew Evans said there was an exchange of gunfire and authorities were still piecing together details of what he described as a terrible day. The firefighter, who also works as a paramedic, was shot while providing aid to the injured officer. Evans, an injured officer, Evans said. He told reporters the paramedic was part of a SWAT team that had been called to a domestic situation at the home. Inside, an armed man had barricaded himself his family, including seven children ranging in age from two to 15, Evans said. He said negotiations lasted for hours before the suspect opened fire. He wasn't specific on the exact amount of time, but the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association said the standoff lasted four hours before SWAT team entered the home. Evans said the suspect had several guns, a large amount of ammunition, and shot at police officers in multiple positions within the home, including the upper and lower floors. Evans said at least one officer was shot inside the home. We certainly don't know the exact exchange of gunfire that occurred. Certainly several officers did return fire. He said that around 8 a.m., the suspect was found dead and the family and children were, were released from the home. None of them were hurt. City's officials identified the slain officers as Paul M. Elmstrand and Matthew Rug, both 27, Adam Finseth, 40, a firefighter and paramedic for the city since 2019, was also killed. Elmstrand, a member of the department's mobile command staff, joined the department in 2017. 
Rouge was hired in 2020 and was part of the department's crisis negotiation team and was a physical evidence officer. Another police officer, Sergeant Adam Medical, was injured and being treated by, at the hospital where there are believed to be non-life-threatening injuries. The, police, the city said as the bodies of the dead left the hospitals, officers saluted before they were taken in a convoy to the medical examiner's office. Police staff watched in scrubs. We're hurting, said Police Chief Tanya Schwartz. Today, three members of our team made the ultimate sacrifice for this community. They are heroes. Neighbors were startled awake by loud pops about an hour before sunrise. Alicia McCallum says she and her family dropped to the floor uncertain whether the noise was gunshot. Seeing her husband peered out the sunroom in squad cars and phalanx of police officers. I think it was a gunshot at first, but then we opened the windows and we saw police everywhere and the police hiding in our neighbor's yards. McCallum, who said McCallum who lives two houses from the source of the commotion. And another shooting, this is from CBS News, updated February 19th at 2.57 a.m. One person is dead and five more wounded, one critically after an early morning shooting at the Waffle House in Indianapolis. At a, at a Waffle House, not the Waffle House. According to the police, officers responded at about 12.40 a.m. local time, which is Waffle House time, to the report of a person being shot and found five apparent gunshot victims. All were brought to hospitals. One of them, a woman, was in critical condition and died at the hospital. The others, three men and a woman, were in stable condition. Then a man showed up at the hospital and was in critical condition. Police said multiple people remained at the scene and were cooperating with investigators. Initial indications were that a disturbance between two groups escalated in the gunfire. It wasn't clear if any of the victims also fired shot, police said. Detectives were going through the restaurant surveillance video as they continued their probe. And that is from CBS News. And no person put their name on it. Not a lot of details, but just another day in the United States of Arms. United States of Ammunition, the USA. Back to you. <clears throat> that, I mean, almost completely and totally just unempathetic about it. Just another day, man. Yeah. Drug it's, it off, it's drug it off. tragic when something that should feel tragic is just, oh, you know, like, oh, yeah, the sun came up. There was a shooting. Yeah. Really fucking sad. All right. Culture news coming from Iwa, out of Iwate in Japan. The na Japan's Naked Men Festival succumbs to the aging population. This is from Japan Today. A steam of sweat rose a hundred of naked men tussled over a bag of wooden talismans, performing a dramatic end of the thousand-year-old ritual in Japan that took place for the last time. Their passionate chants of Yaso, no, Jaso, Joyasa, mean evil be gone, echoed through a cedar forest in Iwate Prefecture, where the secluded Kokuseki Temple has decided to end their popular annual rite. Organizing the event, which draws hundreds of participants and thousands of tourists every year, has become a heavy burden for the aging local faithful, who find it hard to keep up with the rigors of the ritual. The Somonsai Festival, regarded as one of the strangest festivals in Japan, is the latest tradition impacted by the country's aging population crisis that has hit rural, comp company, uh, rural communities hard. 
it's very difficult to organize a festival on the scale, said Daigo Fujinami, a resident monk of the temple that opened in 729. That's a long time for a temple to be open. You can see what happened today. So many people are here, and it's all exciting. But behind the scenes, there are many rituals and so much more work that have to be done, he said. I cannot be blind to the difficult reality. Japan society has aged more rapidly than most other countries. The trend has forced countless schools, shops, and services to close, particularly in small and rural communities. Kokuseki Temple, Soman-sized festival, used to take place from the seventh day of the Lunar New Year through the following morning. But during COVID pandemic, it was scaled down to prayer ceremonies and smaller rituals. The final festival was shortened version, ending at around 11 p.m. But it drew the biggest crowd in recent memory, local residents said. At the sunset, men in white loincloths came to the mountain's temple, bathed in a creek, and marched around the temple's grounds. They clenched their fins against the chill of the winter breeze, all while chanting, Jaso Joyasa. Some held small cameras to record their experience, while dozens of television crews followed the men through the temple stone steps and dirt pathways. As the festival reached its climax, hundreds of men packed inside the wooden temple shouting and chanting and aggressively jostling over a bag of talismans. Toshiaki Ikiuchi, a local resident who claimed the talismans and who helped organize the fest for years, said he hoped the ritual will return in the future. Even under a different format, I hope to maintain this tradition, he said in the festival. There are many things that you can appreciate only if you take part. Many participants and visitors voiced both sadness and understanding about the festival's ending. This is the last of the great festival that has lasted a thousand years. I really wanted to participate in this festival, Yosu Nishimura, 49, a caregiver from Osaka, told AFP. Other temples across Japan continue to host similar festivals where men wear loincloths and bathe in freezing water or fight over talismans. Some festivals are adjusted, adjusting their rules in line with changing demographics and social norms so that they can continue to exist, such as letting women take part in the previously male-only ceremonies. From next year, Kokuseki Temple will replace the festival with prayer ceremonies and other ways to continue its spiritual, spiritual practice. Japan is facing a failing birth rate, aging population, and lack of young people to continue various things, Nishimura said. Perhaps it is difficult to continue the same way it was in the past. So there's your sad news about no more naked men running around in Iwate, but hey! Maybe they'll add some naked women, and everyone can be naked. I mean, I watched an anime recently called Blue-Eyed Samurai, and there was an episode where everyone in the village was naked, and they jumped into the water, the freezing coastline water, for this kind of, like, if you catch the thing, you get luck, the best luck this year, and that's what they did. I don't know if that's a real um, celebration that happened. Maybe it did back in freaking the uh, shogunate era of Japan, but uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, hey, I'm sure it did. As yeah. Island nudist, I don't see the problem with being naked, but that's my my problem, I guess. Not to see the Naked Men Festival go, but uh, Japan is also was very um, thing, the thing with Japan is they are having a failed population. A lot of places are having a failing population, and unfortunately. Um, you can't force people who live in a very hard working, no vacation time. People die from overworking in Japan. That's the society they have built there, yeah. which is great for progress and making money. 
it's not great for making children. Mm -hmm. uh, if your husband is never home, you can't have any children, can you? Also, they have a somewhat misogynist society as well, so women are not treated very nicely. They will get fired from their job if they get pregnant, and there is no protections for them if, they, if that happens. They just accept, I'm pregnant, I'm gonna get fired now, and that's kind of what happens in Japan, right? It's not a paradise. It's a great place to visit, but it's not a paradise, so it's not really a surprise that countries that treat their women badly also have a falling population, because why would you want to have children with a, in a society where you're treated like shit? That's my opinion as a woman. Um, <laughs> on to your day in history, or this day in history. Okay, this day in history. Uh, we're only going back to 1878. We only go back. Nothing happened before 1878. So, and that's day. American inventor Thomas Edison patented the phonograph on this day. Kansas became the first U.S. state to include the prohibition of alcoholic beverage in its state constitution in 1881. So, all that wheat, and you can't make none of it in the booze. U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed the executive order allowing in internment of Japanese Americans during World War II on this day in 1942. FDR said, you're Japanese? Well, you're probably not really American. Go to Utah. 1963, American author and activist Brady Frieden published The Feminine Mystique, a landmark work that has catalyst for the second wave feminist movement. In 1997, Deng Xiaoping, who introduced economic reform to China in 1978, died at the age of 92, so he died in 1997. 2008, Fidel Castro formally resigned as president of Cuba. He was succeeded by his brother Raul. No one's eaten Raul yet. 2016, American author Harper Lee, nationally acclaimed and revered for her first novel, The Kill a Mockingbird, which movingly depicts small town life and racial prejudice, died at the age of 89. 2019, German fashion designer and photographer Carl Lagerfeld, the creative power behind the modern revival of Chanel, the legendary French fashion house founded by Coco Chanel in the early 20th century, well, died in Paris in 2019. We had to tell you who that person was. They probably weren't that famous until they died. I'm just, we include these things that are just totally bizarre in this day in history. 1945, Iwo Jima on this day. Iwo Jima was invaded by U.S. Marines. I've been there. On this day, 1945, during the final phases of World War II, U.S. Marines invaded Iwo Jima so as to wrest control of a strategically important island from J the Japanese who put up a fierce resistance in the ensuing battle. Feature biography, Nicholas Copernicus, Polish astronomer, was born on this day, February 7, 1473, in Turun, Poland. Died on the age of 70 in Fronberg, Poland. Other birthdays today. Shivaji, Indian king, was born in 1630. Lee Marvin, American actor, turns 100 today. If he was alive, he'd be 100. Born in 1924. 1953 is the birthday of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, president of Argentina. 
Also, the birthday of Roger Goodell, American NFL commissioner, was born in 1959, and Prince Andrew, Duke of York, the pervy one, was born in 1960. The pervy one. Allegedly pervy. Andrew. Allegedly. 19, born in What's that? Don't want the freaking royal family to sue us. Allegedly the pervy one. <laughs> Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth, pervy son Andrew, was born in 1960, <laughs> and I'll call him because that's what he is. Also, in this day in the in music history, Lou Christie with the number one in the singles chart of Lightning Strikes. Harry Nielsen started a four-week run with his version of the Bad Finger song Without You, which has made them a lot of money that they didn't get to keep. And in 1980, 1980 on this day, ACDC singer Bon Scott was pronounced dead on arrival at London Hospital after a heavy night's drinking. Scott was found in the passenger seat of a friend's parked car. The official coroner's report stated that he had drunk himself to death after suffocating on his own vomit. Not the way you want to go out, but hey, maybe it is the way you want to go out. Well, that's the way Bon Scott went out. I don't think he chose it. It chose him. Yeah, I guess so. National Day calendar, it's President's Day. The third Monday in February is President's Day. It honors Lincoln and Washington who were both born in February, in case you're wondering. National Chocolate Mint Day. Of course, Lincoln and Washington are the two greatest U.S. presidents. Not greatest and they were perfect. Your greatest and the most impactful. Yeah. National Lash Day. It's National Lash Day. Everybody's got lashes, so celebrate your lashes. If I want to, let me go on a rant here. Yeah, I don't understand this whole obsession the beauty industry has or whoever has with lashes, right? You have to get your fake lashes. You have to get your mascara. You have to make sure they're as huge as possible or that they're visible. And I just don't understand that. I don't know why we are obsessed with lashes. Okay, there's my small short rant about lashes. I think it was started by gay men. That's why I say about all fashion trends. It's like, why are why are these things happening? Gay men, that's your answer, right? Big lashes, care, you see? Them more? Yeah. Like, you, right? National Vet Girls Rise Day. National Vet Girls Rise Day. Uh, yeah, please explain what the hell that is. Because I saw that and I was not, like, what? It's not a veterinarian. It's active veterans with answers. So... You want me to explain it specifically? I will. Is it, does it not national explain specifically? A uh, National Vet Girls Rise Day, R-I-S-E. It's an acronym. Yeah, it's capitalized. Not only is it a day to recognize women's veterans, but it's a day for women veterans to support one another, to share re resources and spread awareness concerning the needs of women veterans. So there you go. Okay, so if you know, if you know a veteran who's a woman support them today i'm not sure i'm not sure you want to call a veteran who's been in the army or so you want to call him a girl but i guess he would just want to be a preteen. that's cool for yeah. you you know i don't know I, yeah I, I'm, I'm, yeah i think it's <laughs> I think weird girl as well but yeah it's just 
Yeah, it just looks like there's teen teenagers hanging out, and it's like they look like vets, man. They look like you're 20 years old. A vet is somebody that's been in and they got out, right? You're not a vet until you're retired. While you're still in, you're active. You're not a vet. Okay. Anyway, National Arabian Horse Day, and those are the those are the extent of the, the days we're gonna waste your time with today. National Arabian Horse Day, National Chocolate Mint Day, and National Lash Day. So there you are. Those are the days for February 19th, 2024 on V4 Coffee. All right. This has been Allison here from the Netherlands. And I'm going to go find some mint chocolate chip freaking ice cream. Yeah, I'm going to eat yeah. it all. The whole bucket. The whole giant. There's no giant buckets of ice cream here, actually. I've never seen Good a stuff. bucket of ice cream here in the Netherlands. There might be some somewhere. Maybe at like a store where you buy it for like a restaurant, you could buy a giant bucket of ice cream. <laughs> but uh, that's what I'm going to do today. I hope you have the good rest of your mucking fun day. And we'll see you tomorrow for Good News Tuesday. We'll go over positive things are happening. For the most part, the positive things are happening uh, last week, over the weekend, and maybe even on Tuesday. Have a good one. Here's your mic drop moment. and notify buttons and follow other channels Toxic Alley History of Gravy and Scratchy Old Records <laughs>